What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. This is episode five, and I'm here with my good friend Jake from TikTok. He's also known as the Christian Apologist on TikTok, um, and we're going to talk a lot about apologetics today, but before we get into our, our topic of discussion, I'm just going to pass it over to Jake to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about who he is, what he does, and all that good stuff. So go ahead, Jake. How's it going? Yeah. So uh, there's not a whole lot to say about me. Uh, currently, I am a real estate agent in uh, Washington State. So if you know of anybody that is looking for a house and needs help, definitely uh, reach out. <laughs> um, I My uh, degrees are in music, so it has nothing to do with apologetics. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a smart guy by any means or anything like that. Uh, but I, I love the Lord and want to use what uh, I have to uh, his glory. Uh, my credentials are I went to Moody Bible Institute uh, for my bachelor's degree. That was in ethnomusicology. You say that 10 times fast, um, which is basically uh, ethnic music. Uh, it's way to think about it um, or the study of ethnic music. Uh, then I went to Eastern Washington University, which is a, a smaller state school here in Washington State. Um, and I studied music composition there. So I do a lot of uh, choral arranging and um, stuff like that. I play, I play my guitar as well. I grew up playing guitar, uh, but that really has nothing to do with apologetics. <laughs> uh, other than I got, I got a biblical education at Moody. Um, I started studying apologetics uh, mostly probably about five years ago. Uh, I had a job where I could listen to a lot of podcasts um, and there was a, a, a growing need in my life to be ready to defend the faith and uh, give an accounting. And so I uh, started falling in love with, I, to, if, if for those of you that know your, your schools of apologetics, I grew up, like most people, as a classicalist. Uh, I think you're William Lane Craig, C.S. Lewis, uh, David Wood, Nabil Qureshi, uh, those kinds of people. Um, and then at Moody, I became a fideist, uh, which is you'll hear a lot of people kind of classify that as um, you, you think that you see life through axioms that are indefensible, but you, you kind of interpret things that way. Yeah. Uh, the presuppositionalist, and I, so I went from uh, classicalist to fideist, back to classicalist to presuppositionalist, and that's probably where I'll stay for the rest of my life. Um, but so, so in, in short, Classicalists typically use evidences, but in a different kind of way. Fideists don't normally use evidences, but they, they will argue uh, particular points of axioms and, and check on your, your consistencies. Presuppositionalists are more likely to look at, um, we'll probably get into this a little bit more, yeah. um, but uh, so they're, they're looking for internal inconsistencies and then what presuppositions can satisfy the preconditions for intelligibility or how, how, what the things that we experience in our lives, what needs to be the case for that to be the case is a way to look at it. Sure. Sure. Well, let, let's just start there. Um, why, why is, why would you say out of those three categories, uh, presuppositional apologetics is the one that Christians should gravitate towards and why it's important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, so, uh, of course, I'm, I'm still a student of it, and I, right. I uh, am growing in it still. 
uh, I think that it is the most biblical uh, form of, of uh, apologetics because it, it, at its core, it's meant to go to the unbelieving world and stand on the word of God as the word of God. So it's common for a classicalist to go to someone and say, you be the judge. A presuppositionalist who, who knows what he's talking about isn't going to say that. Because the, the point of it is that the person that you're talking to that's questioning God doesn't have the position of being a judge. So when Peter is talking about go give a defense for your faith, he still has, it's not just give a defense for your faith however you want. He says set Christ apart as Lord, giving a defense for your faith. Um, and there are, I think the most powerful um, statement in terms of epistemology in the Bible uh, is found in the first chapters of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm, yeah. uh, and I think that that's that a very powerful phrase in that the, the, ba- the, I think the thrust of knowledge in the Bible is that unless you start with the premise, God is, the biblical God is, yeah. then you're left in foolishness. Uh, and that's going to show itself in a, a multiple ways. Um, and that's, that's the goal of the presuppositionalist most of the time is to do an internal critique, show the unbeliever um, that what they are standing on is sand. Yeah. And that Christ is the solid rock upon which we can build all, all of our reasoning. Um, so, in, again, in Proverbs, when it says, um, right next to each other, answer the cool according to his folly. Or don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Yeah. Right after that, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, uh, basically showing his foolishness. Hmm. Um, those aren't contradicting phrases. They're, it's trying to explain two different ways to approach uh, dialogue with those that are in disagreement, that don't. And Proverbs says that the fool is one who doesn't uh, submit to God or who, one who doesn't believe in God. Um, so in this instance, we're talking about how do you, how do you find out what the basic presuppositions of that, the person's worldview, uh, where do they contradict and where are they assuming, um, certain foundational premises? Right. Uh, so Greg Bonson, I was listening to a lecture of his just a second ago and he said that that's, that's kind of the thrust when you're doing an internal critique. You're looking for arbitrary conjecture so if somebody says well the bible was just uh written by a bunch of medieval monks that had an agenda you know where are they getting that idea where where um is that just something that they are saying that sounds intelligent they heard somebody say once often a lot of these things are just going to be arbitrary pieces of anecdotes that they've heard from somebody that sounded smart on youtube (laughs) Right. right um and then beyond that, you're looking for internal inconsistencies to point out, hey, in, according to your epistemology, that's how you know what you know. Uh, and I, I like to poke fun at the atheists on TikTok mostly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we'll, we'll see if I stay there, but that, that's kind of my, where my heart's at at the moment is, is atheism. Yeah. Um, when, when they're making knowledge claims, they're making it in such a way that sounds definite, that sounds like absolute knowledge needs to be attainable. So for them to say uh, something that depends on logic per se, 
um, they're depending on a concept that needs to be universal. Uh, it needs to be something that transcends our reality. But if something transcends a reality, then that's essentially supernatural. Right. But in, in their mind, logic needs to coincide with reality. If it coincides with reality or started with reality, then by its nature, it changes. Hmm. So if, if logic started with the Big Bang or wherever they decide to put it, if, if the laws of logic are in place at that point, the law of non-contradiction, law of identity, law of the excluded middle, um, then by their nature, they change because they began to exist. Mm, yeah. So logic all of a sudden becomes fickle. Right. But the way that they're speaking, passively, they're disagreeing with that by depending on the uniformity of nature, the uh, consistency, continuity of logic, right. um, things that they won't be able to prove, but they're going to assert and assume. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I guess a good thing is, a good question to go from here is, why, why is it that atheists are contradicting themselves when they appeal to, say, logic and reasoning? What is it about their worldview that makes that incompatible? I'm, I'm working, we're about to finish the video here pretty soon. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah. Uh, and maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just thinking I'm more clever than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is probably the case. Um, so I, I was thinking, how, how do you show somebody that they are acting like they believe God exists, yet they deny it? Um, and that's, that's the whole point of what we're trying to say is that actually you, you don't believe there is no God and you don't believe that you don't know that there is no God. Right. Cause you're demonstrating it by, by the things you say. Right. So, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that people don't get this far into this conversation if they're, if they're atheists, but we'll, we'll see, <laughs> uh, gotta, gotta get them to wait for that video I'm making. Yeah. Um, so there, there are two different phrases in, in logic. And again, I'm not a, I'm not a logician. I'm not a philosopher. I'm just a guy with a couple music degrees. Um, so modus ponens and modus tollens, those are, are two logical phrases. Um, my, the easiest example is for me to conceptualize these modus uh, ponens is the, the positive assertion. So you're saying, uh, if it rains, then it's wet. It's raining, therefore it's wet. So that's, that's an affirmation of the statement. It's, it's a, it, it, it logically follows basically. So it's, it, and, and you can see it's wet outside because it's raining and all that. Um, now the, the opposite of that is to run backwards, uh, and, and then negate the, the second part of the phrase. So it's not wet outside, therefore it's not raining. Um, it doesn't work the other way around. So like, I, I couldn't say uh, it is wet outside, therefore it's raining. That's affirming the consequent. That's because um, it could be a wet outside for some other reason, right? Right, so right. Somebody could have their hose on or um, it could be snowing and it melted or whatever. Right. Um, but it does work negatively backwards. So it's not wet outside, therefore it's not raining. Mm. Um, now, in the phrase that I'm using, 
Um, I'm, I'm calling it <laughs> my, my handle on, on a YouTube, my, my name on YouTube is Jake the Snake, so I'm calling it the, the snake's argument from the antithesis. <laughs> I like uh, that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so I'm saying if, if atheism is true, so to test a worldview, you yeah. have to assume its validity. So assume its truthfulness, start there, and then see where it leads you. Um, so assume that the everything started uh, unintentionally. So the cause, this is the cause and effect statement. So the cause of the universe, the cause of uh, all things, the cause of the universe is unintentional. Therefore, the effects are unintentional as well. Mm-hmm. So the metaphysical reality of what we live in, the total of that is a result of its beginning. There's no way out of that. So un- unintentional cause, unintentional effect. That includes this conversation. That includes every nasty TikTok comment you get, everything. Right. Um, now, what's fun about this is when when they start commenting, when I've, I've done a few videos on TikTok where I say that first part of the phrase, I don't finish it though. Yeah. Um, and they start commenting, no, I, I do have intent. I, I have intent, Jake. Um, I, I obviously have intent because I'm responding to you. And my point is exactly right. If you're negating the second part of the phrase, you're saying I don't, or the, the effects are not always unintentional because I have intention. Exactly. Therefore the cause of the universe isn't unintentional as well. Mm. And it's necessarily so. Right. Um, is you're, you're negating the, the consequent of that modus tollens. Right. So as, as Christians, um, I think one, one of the, one of the questions I get a lot from specifically newer Christians and even some that are just facing the atheists and the different people in the world that'll come up against your faith and stuff. One of the hardest things is how do I, how do I prove that the worldview of Christianity, that the, that Christianity is true, especially when I'm faced with the question of what about all the other different religions out there? So how would, through the pre-sup apologetics, how would you go about helping somebody yeah. work through that and establishing that? It's a loaded the, question, I know. Yep. The, the first phrase is by the impossibility of the contrary. Yeah. Um, the other way to say that is we, we wouldn't know, um, there is no way to prove anything unless you start with the Christian God. So his transcendent nature, his attributes by those, we are able to um, understand the world around us because we use those concepts even passively without acknowledging God. Atheists use the attributes of God, his transcendent nature, his eternal attributes. Um, when they're looking at nature, they're assuming those things like the law of induction. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 the future is going to be like the past. Um, they're assuming those qualities. So my favorite proof is that everyone around us is acting like the Christian God is the real God. Hmm. The, they just inherently act like it. The more I study this, the more it just seems like uh, Bill, the atheist over there, acts like he knows God. Right. By virtue of him getting mad at me when I'm telling him that you act like the Christian God is the true God. Mm, yeah. why, why would you feel like you have the right to get mad at me if universal morals aren't in place? 
Right. Furthermore, <clears throat> how would you be able to assert that logical absolutes are an effect if we're in a changing, uh, if we are in a universe that is created by chance? Right. You're acting like those things aren't true. You're acting like you live in a definite world that absolute knowledge is possible. Absolute knowledge can only be possible two ways. Either you know everything or you know someone who does. Right. Do you know certain things absolutely? Yeah, you do. You know that you exist. You know that other people around you exist. You know that the laws of logic are universal. These are things that are inherent to our nature. They're inherent to the, the world around us. And you know them intuitively. You know that they, they are. Yeah. Uh, one plus one equals two. Always. Forever. Right. Because that, that's a part of the person of God. Um, you're going to act like that. So when you study the attributes of God, you're, you're also studying in a way the world that he made. There's two different uh, fields of, of theology in this sense that there is special revelation and then there is natural revelation. When we study natural revelation or science, we are studying God's outpouring of his nature into the physical world. Right. And we always act like that. We, no matter who you talk to, whether it's a scientist or, or Joe down the street, <laughs> right. everyone's going to act like the attributes of God are in effect. Yeah. Um, so that, that's one way I'd say that we, we know that the Christian God is, is the true God. Um, but also I don't want to downplay that we primarily know him because he's revealed himself to us. Right. That's not necessarily an apologetic tactic or technique but it's it's nevertheless true and it needs yeah. to be said fundamental yeah yeah um and then i and this is one thing that a lot of people get wrong about uh presuppositionalism is that they think that we don't use evidences and that couldn't be further from the truth right um people that are, are very skilled in, in in presuppositional apologetics know when to use uh, uh evidences I like to think about it is presuppositionalism tends to start with epistemology, but you can use everything. It's like you're, you're starting with the root of the tree and you're chopping away at it. Once yeah. it falls, you're free to chop it as many times as you want into wood that can burn more easily. Right. Um, it's going to die either way. Uh, that's why I started the hashtag atheism is dead. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a dead philosophy um, right. and it's been dead. Right. Um, so, for, for instance, I was listening to a talk between Gary Habermas, who is a very famous classical apologist. Actually, he might be evidentialist. More like this, okay. There's a, a couple of dis distinctions between the evidentialist and classical. Well, I'm not really sure about that. Uh, but he was, he was talking with e Elias Ayala, who is becoming quickly one of my uh, new favorite presuppositionalist uh, debaters. Um, I've never heard. Very skip. I'll have to. Yeah, he's, I'll have to check him out. Revelational apologetics. He's got about a thousand subscribers on YouTube, and that's about all that he does. He, he has a Facebook channel as well, but um, he interviews a lot of apologists, and he he's done some debates, and he's a very skilled de debater, um, very much in the school of Bonson. Hmm. Um, only by virtue of listening to Bonson's tapes and lectures and books and stuff like that. Um, so he, he's a good resource, but anyway, he was talking to, to Gary Habermas and, um, 
if you know about Gary's uh, study, he's he's about he's really focused on the minimal facts argument. Are you familiar with that? I am not actually no. So the minimal facts argument takes the um, the skeptic's position um, and essentially what it's doing, he's assuming people like Bart Ehrman, um, you know, people who are, are skeptics of the faith, right. they spend their career analyzing the Bible in such a way to dismantle it. Yeah. Um, there are certain historical facts that they're going to give you as givens. Um, so I can't remember what, what all of them he uses, but a classical one is like, so the skeptics will uh, give you that Jesus died or Jesus existed. Uh, he died. And his followers genuinely believed that he rose again from the dead. Right. And he's got he's got a few more that they'll give him, like uh, the 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 song that um, or what was it in First Corinthians uh, when Paul said, "This is what I bring to you, um, what was told to me." Um, anyway, so he'll take phrases like that with the skeptic. The skeptics will give him like, "This is probably genuine. This is probably genuine." stuff that we don't hold to as Christians. Like we, we grant the entire Bible is revelatory. Right. And so we're not bound to that. Now his tactic is to take only the concepts that the skeptics give him and then say, now here is the most probabilistic explanation is the resurrection. So it is an accumulative probabilistic answer. Right. Um, which most people think presuppositionalists hate that kind of argument. Um, but he was, he was telling or he's talking to Greg Bonson about this and, and he was, and he, you know, getting into this technique and, and Bonson was like, Oh, I love that argument. And, and Gary was like, how, how could you love it? I thought you're a presuppositionalist and you hate evidences. No, it's great because you're, you're assuming their worldview and, and you're putting them in a position where heads I win tail you lose. Hmm. <laughs> right. Right. So, and that's, and that's the thing is with presuppositional apologetics, you can take the antithetical worldview and in as many ways possible, show them even on your grounds, you're still wrong. Christ is still Lord on my grounds. He is Lord. Right. Um, so yeah. and, and that's just, that, that's just it. Like you're, you're finding fundamentally what are their presuppositions? Where are they internally inconsistent? Showing them still that even on their foundations, Christ is still Lord. And then showing them from my perspective, I have a grounds for everything. Right. And not, not only like if, if I'm a naturalist, I, I couldn't believe, like I made a video on this on TikTok. I couldn't believe how many people did not get what I was saying. I, I was asserting that I was showing that if you're a naturalist, you are forced to believe that all events are natural in such a way that if a supernatural event were to happen, a genuinely supernatural event were to happen, you wouldn't have the interpretive capacity to know that it was. So right. you're much more limited in scope. Now me as a supernaturalist, I have a much broader ability to, to actually interpret an event right? in such a way. And I, at the, at the moment I, I hold to the, the, the six day creation. Um, I, I've gone between Hugh Ross and, and Jason Lyle. I think they're, they're yeah. both brothers in law that do a good job, but yeah. uh, I, I tend to hold to a more young earth model. Yep. Um, that being said, the naturalist really only has one option and, and they keep on pegging us as, as having fewer options. Like we're, 
we're told what to believe. Right. But I actually have a, a larger parameter of Possibly. breadth and depth to be yeah. able to understand something. So if, if it turns out my understanding of scripture is, is wrong and uh, we are living on an earth that's millions and millions of years, I, I still actually have that option. I don't think it's the correct one. Right. But like my interpretive scope is much wider. Right. Um, it, just, it just blew my mind. They, like most of them had no idea what I was saying. Huh. And they were saying, well, if a miracle happened, then it wouldn't be a, a, a miracle. And like you are proving right. what I am saying. What you're saying. <laughs> right. Yeah. Forget who it was. I was watching. I think it was John, John, John Lennox with another guy. And mm -hmm. he pretty much said, you know, if Christ were to resurrect from the dead, right in front of my eyes, I would, Dawkins. I would have to, I, I don't think it was Dawkins. It was, uh, Peter, uh, I forget his last name. Oh, was it Hitchens? It wasn't Peter Hitchens. No, it was, I forget. But anyways, he basically said, if Christ were to resurrect in front of me, I would chalk it up to hallucination because supernatural just can't happen, you know? And so that's yep. again, just furthering what you're saying that that worldview is so limited in, in what it allows that it's explain it's it's power to explain anything is falls tragically short naturalism i think honestly is a straight jacket hmm. it limits you so much and be able to understand anything really yeah, um yeah. You, you really only have so many options and if you disagree with those options you're you're basically a flat earther or so, some other kind of conspiracy theorist right. um that's a defense mechanism, really. <laughs> when yeah. They, when they lash out like that, because they they it's almost it's almost that they they can't see it, but they know deep down they don't have anywhere else to go except lash out because their worldview only allows them to go so far. Yeah. You know? Um, and they they don't have a way in their worldview to be able to account for um, in the end justice wins out. Yeah. So if they can't convince you that they are right or people around them to justify them and their beliefs, that it ends there. Right. Right. I, to me, it seems like, so, uh, Van Til said this, Van Til is, is considered the father of presuppositional apologetics. Okay. Um, atheism is like stringing a bead with no holes onto a string with no end. Hmm you'd have to arbitrarily choose where to start, but there's no, not even a way to put the bead on. Like in terms of knowledge, there's no way to connect reality and your ability to understand reality. Um, you're essentially left with solipsism, hmm. um, which is basically the, the belief that you can't know anything outside of yourself. And I think even that's debatable. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I, I don't think that the self is a coherent concept in atheism. Right. Yeah. Um, another, another way to look at it is I, I really think that any kind of argumentation is depending that on the fact that our um, universe has a, an intentional telos to it. It has an intentional starting point and end point. Like there is a goal in mind. Right. Um, that's because if you're talking about individual sets of data, if we live in a world that is um, ambiguous and uh, unintended, the difference to me seems like 
So uh, imagine if, if the Christian worldview is a stream from the mountain to the, or, or, you know, a river from someplace to the ocean. Okay. There's a goal to that information. Uh, atheism is like a pool that has no top, no bottom, and no ends. Hmm. Wherever you're born, um, it, you're, it's a completely arbitrary set of data. And any new set of data uh, would could, has the potential to um, sh- change your perspective 100%. Because hmm. there, there is no way for you to know that you know something absolutely. So right. I, I, I can't remember where I heard it. Um, it was this uh, analogy, basically, of this uh, two men holding down a boy. Our first instance would be like, okay, crap, let's go knock them over and save, save the child. Right. Uh, until you find out that they have a uh, antidote for a snake bite. Mm. Okay, well, great. Well, now, now it would be absolutely immoral for you to do that same action. Right. Um, again, the, the only way that you can know something absolutely, any set of data, what, what, you know, people often tout that I, I think, therefore, I am you're assuming self and you're assuming that thinking equals being right. Uh, I think since the, since the advent of computers, I think we can know for a fact that thinking doesn't equate personhood. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I have, I have a quick question because this is all new to me. I've, I've never really dived into the pre sub apologetics at all, but, um, when it comes to talking with an atheist, one of the, one of the biggest things that they bring up, all the time is they have very strong moral <laughs> it's uh, moral tendencies and moral objections to the Christian faith and to religion in general um, theism um, and I, I find that all atheists that I've watched you you know I would say Christopher Hitchens was probably one of the most outspoken in terms of his moral objections to uh, Christianity um, but w- w- from a presuppositional standpoint, how do you explain the, the problem of evil um, in the Christian worldview? How would you go about um, reconciling that with um, with the nature of God and the way he's revealed himself as good um, while also having evil, but also, rec- also understanding and coming from the standpoint of you can't approach evil without a, start, a starting point and an ultimate uh, objective yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. To, to me, uh, you're cutting out a little bit. So I hope I understood the question correctly. But um, so in, in terms of speaking about God and the problem of evil, there is no problem of evil. When people, people point out theodicy is some kind of revolutionary way to approach the issue of God like it, it means something, but it doesn't. Um, theodicy, by the way, is, is the, the word philosophers use to talk about the problem of God and evil. If, if God is all powerful, all loving, all good, uh, then why is there evil? Um, it all depends on what, what is the actual purpose of reality. So if the, the whole purpose of reality is man's happiness, then sure, I'll give you that. Then, then right. may, maybe you'd have an argument for um, that God not being able to exist, but that's not the God I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for a God that does things. The, the good way to put it is, so if, if that kind of God exists, then we live in, then the, the best of all possible worlds needs to exist. And that's a hard concept for a lot of people to grasp with because there's a lot of terrible things that happen in this world. 
Right. But again, if, if we're talking about um, the Christian God, and I think in particular in uh, Reformed theology, then we can understand God in, in a much more specified way. Right. In that, that God doesn't act according to the whim of human demands. God doesn't act according to what we think is best. But the end goal of all history is not our comfort. But the end goal of all history is his glory. Right. Uh, and I think the Westminster Confession gets it correct when it says that the chief end of man is to enjoy God. Right. Um, so there, there is joy involved, but that's not the end of it. So, and again, I find it fascinating, the oldest book in the Bible, probably Job, yeah. that its main question is the question of theodicy. Yeah. And a lot of people, they, they want to say it was, it was Satan's fault. You know, Satan came to God, but no, God came to Satan. Right. Said, have you seen my servant Job? And Job's, uh, what Job learned essentially at the end of that whole uh, thing that he went through is you don't question God. Yeah. God says, you know, when, when he was in that place of questioning God and his friends were encouraging him to do so, um, God basically came back and said, where were you when I created everything? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's essentially what we're left with. It, it is, it, it is a question that doesn't feel incredibly resolved to us, but there's no problem. Yeah. There, there, there's no problem of theodicy. Not when you understand it from a reformed perspective. Yeah. If, if you try to go from maybe the, um, more evangelical kind of approach, uh, you know, life way kind of Christianity or not to dog on life way per se, right, but right. a lot of the books in there, um, you know, they, they make God to seem like he is powerless. Um, like all, I think their, their theology, even though they wouldn't claim open theism, that is the belief that no. God doesn't know what the future will hold. Um, and perhaps isn't all powerful. Um, I think if, if you grant their basic premises, then truly, um, it, it could, it leads to, uh, it just leads to it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. yeah. That's, that's a phenomenal answer. And that's, I'm right there with you. Um, I think that when we are able to objectively look and see who God is and who we are and ultimately define what, why is creation here in the first place. And, you know, Colossians talks about, all things by him for him um, that really answers it <laughs> very, very yeah. straight up. Um, yes. Yeah. And one, one final, cause I think a lot of people do feel like they, they have been left in one thing when listening to presuppositional apologetics in terms of yeah. the gospel, uh, the God, the gospel is foundational to this whole process. So I, I, I don't want people to hear something about epistemology and then be left wanting in the gospel, but truly, the fact that God sent his son, the second person, the Trinity down to earth is essential uh, to our understanding of everything. Right. Uh, he, he died on the cross and he rose again on, on the third day. Um, I think there's something pivotal about that moment um, that while the, the old Testament is sufficient for depending on um, you know, getting a source for your epistemology, grounding yourself, right. Right. That becomes real. That becomes um, permanent and, and a part of this world 
when God, the transcendent one, becomes flesh and interacts with his creation, he condescends, right. that takes those abstract ideas of universal uh, abstracts, logic, mathematics, induction, uh, all those things that we need to survive as humans. That says these concepts that are only found in scripture and brings it down to earth. Now, a lot, a lot of people have an objection like, like, well, what if you find a worldview that, that can do the same thing? I, I would argue that you'd be able to do that uh, for one. Um, yeah. But I heard Jason Lyle one time, he said, um, well, he, here's the thing about presuppositional apologetics. Once you have another worldview to compete against, bring it into the ring. Yeah. The, Bi the Bible will bloody it up. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I think I think one of the, the, the things that I've learned studying apologetics very minimum, minimally, I, I really haven't put in a lot of time, but the one thing that has brought me a lot of hope is that through my study, every single time the Bible, Christianity comes out on top. I've never, I've never once found anything remotely to indicate that there's something flawed about it. Um, yeah. So holding on to that and having that as your starting point when you argue um, and when you uh, challenge other thoughts is, is fundamental. So yep. that's awesome. Yeah. And again, to, to point out like the, the things that I think a lot of people will trip up on is atheists are, are it's very popular right now for the atheists to attack the, the continuity of scripture yeah. or the, the contradiction so-called. Sure. Um, a, a, a big one though, and again, here, here's the presuppositional in me coming out. Why are contradictions bad? One, in their worldview. Yeah. Because they're not. Right, right. Um, and then if you're to grant my worldview, because I don't think that you can have a, um, a sufficient objection to another worldview, if you externally uh, argue. Like it needs to be an internal argumentation. Otherwise, you're begging the question. You're assuming your, your own premises. You have to assume that there is a biblical reason for the so-called discrepancy. Um, and that there isn't a, you need to be able to assume that those, those details right there, yeah. whatever you're looking at, um, there, there might be a biblical reason for it, depending on what you're talking about. Uh, and just internal in the Christian worldview, those, those aren't really an issue. Right. Um, so again, it, it all depends on, on what perspective you're taking. Yeah. Um, so we were talking briefly before I started filming about music and I really want to go there cause that, that was really, really cool. So, yeah. um, music and apologetics, a match made in heaven, maybe that nobody thought <laughs> could go together. How, how does it fit together? Yeah. Um, so I, I told you, I'm, I'm debating on writing a book on this. Uh, I'm not a great writer, so it, it's taken me a while to finish the, the first one that I'm working on. Um, but my, my first degree, like I said, is in uh, ethnomusicology. So initially I was thinking I was, I was going to be a missionary. Um, and so, you know, I spent a decade and a half studying music. And so it seemed to make sense uh, to kind of combine the two. Okay, well, if I'm going to be uh, a musician and I'm going to be a missionary, then I might as well take those two and put it together. Right. Um, and I loved it. It was a, it was a, it was a fun study. Uh, had a lot of great times uh, studying other cultures and their music. Um, 
but when talking about reformed epistemology, um, which is it's interesting with the reformed theology, uh, how we know what we know, put them together. Yep. Um, and, and that's often um, that the thoughts of presuppositional apologists often stem from reformed epistemology. So those two are very okay. closely linked together. Cool. Um, when I'm thinking about music, uh, and I think that this is easy to see in, in different forms of art uh, and in the scientific endeavors of the world. You know, if, if you think where, where's the scientific revolution, it was in the, the Christian West. Um, not to say that other cultures didn't have uh, their own revolutions, uh, but they were often squashed out by worldviews, uh, politically or uh, culturally. Um, but I think it would be really fun to do a survey uh, of music culture globally, um, particularly because there, there is an interesting kind of advancement that you can find in Western music or even cultures that have appropriated Western music theory sure and match it with their own um so again what i'm not saying is that people that don't believe in christianity are less smart i'm not saying that other kinds of music are worse sure but there is something interesting when you're taking a look at music history there is a trajectory of uh increasing incrementally increasing complexity over time in the western arts uh, and you'll get this to some degree in other places too. Uh, India has a rich music history, so does China and Japan. Um, but their their kinds of music often is much more simplistic in terms of uh, its harmony and even in, in its music theory. Um, Eastern music, particularly, I'm talking China and Japan and Korea. Those kinds of music tend to use types of pentatonic scales, which are Yep. It's easier to make it sound pretty. Yep. <laughs> Har harmonies, harmonies flow much more naturally or uh, sounds when they're played simultaneously sound much more um, fluid when you're playing. Imagine if you're playing only the black keys on, on a That's piano. That's basically all I use for all my guitar riffs. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <around that. laughs> yep. So the pentatonic scale is very important yep. uh, globally. Um, now with Western music, um, and again, I, I really think this comes from the concepts that we find in scripture where we can depend on the laws of induction hmm. um, to be able to say, let's, let's start with an objective basis to reality and start moving forward. That idea comes from the belief that God's uh, nature is found in natural revelation. Hmm. Um, so his, his transcendent nature and his, um, you know, the heat doesn't change. He, he was the same yesterday, today, the same, tomorrow and forever. Right. Um, so when we play a C note, it's going to be C tomorrow. Uh, and when we play a C and an E together, that's going to sound like a C and an E together tomorrow. Right. Um, now, we have uh, people that started to take interest in writing church music. And so somebody decides to write a line, just a single line, and write notes in relation to that line, so that, or, or dots, so that way when you're trying to recall a memory, you can or recall a, a, a melody, you have an idea of what's happening. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, I really think these, these are all concepts that are, are found in, in Christian revelation in that, you know, again, why do you think that the scientific revolution happened in the Christian West is because we have concepts of reality that are not unstable. If you, you know, take a look at Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, you know, those kinds of religions, those kinds of beliefs don't get you uh, objective reality. They get you um, maybe some kind of experientialism, um, but there, it's not that you can base reality on those kinds of ideas. Um, and so when you take a look at uh, the history of uh, Western music, people started adding lines on top of that initial line and then they gave it scales. So we get our uh, modes from you know, the Greeks, Ionian, Ionian, Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, uh, Locrian. Um, and they each have their own sound. Now, primarily today we use major and minor scales, but they're based on those uh, modal scales that are, you'll probably often more find in uh, jazz music. Right. Um, but, but why is it in, in the West we have stuff with increasing complexity? And, and again, that, it does happen in, in other places, but you know, whether you're looking at a tribal music, uh, African music that's, you know, drums, very com complicated in terms of its polyrhythm, um, but nothing really even comes close when you're talking about global music um, to the canon of Western music. Nobody has Bach. Right. Nobody has Beethoven. <laughs> and these men exist because the, the West was able to think if we can have, in a sense, um, musical law or grammar, uh, you put men like that into, you know, people hate limitations. Right. But when, when you're talking about uh, grammar, when you're talking about language, limitation helps you communicate more effectively. Mm. Right, because you're you're assigning rules and values to something, so uh, so we can communicate more clearly. Again, a concept that I, I don't think you're able to get clearly unless revelation is expected right. to communicate something very specific. So we, that's that's how we get textual criticism, which is a, another very important study in in the field of Western music is textual criticism because you want to know what did Bach actually write. Right. Because there, there are also distinctions in, in, in those manuscripts, something that we only get from biblical study. Because again, if you go to the Quran, um, that, that kind of idea that um, you're, you're allowed to go to your holy books and critique them to be able to come to a more accurate understanding, that idea doesn't exist in other places. Right. Um, it's more likely, like in the history of the Quran, there, there was a massive burning of different variants. Hmm. <laughs> you know, right. th th that's, that's their solution to a variant problem, yeah. as were the biblical problem of variants, because we believe in objective reality that God is sovereign over all of creation. That gives us the basis to go back and, and critique our, um, our passing down of manuscripts. Which right. happens which happens in the Western canon um, and so and again you're getting and, and I love this so uh, our harmony 
yeah. Western harmony is based on, on uh, thirds. So right. in a scale, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, you're taking uh, do, mi, do, re, mi, do, mi, so, sorry. No, no, <laughs> it's, been, no, no. It's, been, it's been a while since I've done that. Um, <laughs> I haven't so much been in the music world for a while. Do, mi, so. So you're taking those three notes three, and you're right. adding them together. You're getting a chord. Nice. Um, and then if you want to add a seventh, of the, a seventh on top of that, it gets even more complicated. Do, mi, so, ti. You know, you're, you're creating uh, a much more interesting and vibrant kind of chord. Right. How in the world are you going to get there if you don't have a starting point? You know, it seem, it, to, right. to a musician, this sounds like a given, but it's, it's not a given. How do right. you get uh, even basic rhythms and to be able to write down these rhythms too? Yeah. To be able to actually uh, go in and hear and say, okay, if the pulse if the pulse is at a sixty, and then to be able to subdivide that into, yeah, or polyrhythms, if you want to write that down, we have, you know, that that's all depending on transcendent absolutes where derivative of God's nature yeah where we were able to make um, future predictions of increasing complexity and being able to communicate that to other people right because if if you're not creating the image of God if we have like a Hegelian view of, of uh, reality where man is kind of on this upward slope yeah or if if we're uh, thinking Darwinian philosophy, you know, we're, again, it's kind of an upward slope, but there might be some degradation in there. And, it, you know, right. however you're going to look at that line, how am I going to assume that I'm going to be able to take musical ideas that are, are complicated and teach them to another person? If you're not creating the image of God, there's, there's no guarantee right. that I'm going to be able to teach anybody these ideas that I have. There has to be a, a reason there has to be a, a want uh, to be able to do any of these things. Like there, there has to be, like if you're going to spend your entire life, like, I mean, let's, let's go back to science, for example. You know, if you're talking yeah. about um, uh, the guy that discovered the, the formula for gravity, shoot, what's his name? Um, um, <laughs> just Newton. out of my head, yeah. Right? <laughs> so he, uh, not only does, does he discover the formula, for gravity he invented the math to make it possible right how so you're going to tell me that somebody is going to spend their entire life and, and again these were not givens back then right you had to assume that you live in a universe that is law-like how are you going to have the confidence that it's law-like if there's not a law giver yep um and so we we go through uh, a millennia and a half of written music mm -hmm. in the West. And um, this is what I find extremely interesting. Um, so, Dude, I'm on the edge of my seat right now because I've, I've <laughs> never thought about this stuff and it's blowing my mind as a musician. It's giving me a, just a, a crazy new perspective. It's awesome. <laughs> well, get this. It gets even crazier. Okay. Um, so at, at the turn of the 20th century, yeah. So Dar Darwinian uh, philosophy takes root uh, in our public education and, and, and 
uh, society. It's just starting to become more of a assumed role in society. Uh, you start to get more uh, at, at the academic level, you start to get more uh, artists that are taking a more, um, what's, what's the word I should give it? Chance-based kind of uh, creative process. Sure. So you have guys like uh, John Cage, who was a um, student of almost an Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> it's another German name. Uh, the guy that invented atonal music. Okay. Atonal music is like the apex of, it's very weird, but it's like when people discovered they could, they could write their own rules to music theory and something would still work if you write your sure. own rules. Okay. And he was like, he was like the, the climax of hyper rule driven music. Okay. Um, his student, John Cage, uh, he, I'm going to die if I can't think of his name. What, what is his name? He came from Germany, lived in California. Sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, anyway, uh, look up Atoll music. It's pretty wild. Okay. Uh, yeah. But John Cage, uh, his teacher said that the way that you write music is like listening to somebody that's banging his head against the wall. And he said, great, well then I'll do that. Um, so his idea was to take dice and he'd roll them. And then whatever the values were, that's the notes that he would write. Hmm. Um, and this is around the same time when people were starting to experiment with painting where they would just um, kind of let gravity do its thing. Sure. Um, or more blotches and stuff like that. Right. Very um, like they were trying to represent the non-form likeness of the universe which is bizarre to me because these concepts are still derivative of like formlessness is depending on the form existing right <laughs> um and so when you have musicians like john cage you know they're they're writing stuff and, and you get this even in in uh, novels as well uh philip k dick would use do you know who he is I don't um, actually know. So Philip K. Dick is the guy that wrote the book. Um, I dream of electric sheep. Uh, it, he was the guy that wrote um, minority report. Okay. The, the initial book for that. Okay. Um, so a lot of the ways I, I heard, and this is about the sixties, fifties, somewhere in there um, that he would write his books based on Chinese fortune telling. Hmm. So, and again, I, and this is a personal conviction of mine. I think, I think I can show it given a little bit more research, but um, atheism and paganism are one and the hand same. And, yeah. and, and given more time in atheism, atheism will disappear and, and new forms of paganism are, are going to rise. That's why on our, on, on our channel, um, I'm, I'm taking a special interest in um, the occult and I, I interviewed somebody that that came out of you know talking with demons and and all that stuff got it um so anyway uh oh and john cage is a buddhist um okay. i i firmly believe and i think this is this is um evident through artistic history globally 
you can only get, John Cage can only have a career in music on the, the decaying backbone of 20th century or, or of Western music history. Right. Okay. Yeah. So when I say that, I, th I think the Christian worldview is evidently true based on its influence in culture and by, by its necessity in, in its um, transcendent absolutes. I think it's apparent when you're looking at the, the large barometer, the, the width of the global traditions, which one actually had a drive and the ability to take off in increasing complexity. And then once you remove the foundation for its increasing complexity, within a generation or two, you start to see the decay of that, that culture's ability to hold on to um, art and the, um, like being able to view that beauty has a uh, real value. Mm. Uh, the, the belief that beauty is objective. Um, when you remove those kinds of things, you're gonna see more people like John Cage. I think there is a reason that um, from the 50s and 60s, it was really popular to do stuff like that. Uh, and we're still seeing kind of the abstract art. Um, and I think that there, there is some kind of objectivity that's been reintroduced into a system that's helping yeah. it survive a bit because you're seeing more people um, gravitate toward other kinds of music other than, than those things because um, sure. they realize they're not beautiful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're, just up, not, yeah. they're, they're just not. Right. Uh, and I'm okay with experimentation. Like I, 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 I think that there is room for uh, development of ideas. Uh, if you ever want to look up Charles Ives, he's one of the uh, pillars of American music in the 20th century. Uh, experimenter, really weird guy. He, you know, universalist, very liberal kind of Christian, barely even a Christian. He wasn't, but I mean, he, he like, sure. he went to he went to a church that called itself a Christian church. Got it. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, he would like tune two, two pianos a quarter tone apart and then write a duet for them. Hmm. And it sounds really spooky. Like it's just, it's weird, but it has its place. Like I'm not, I'm not opposed to any of these things. Like th right. there's nothing wrong with writing. Like John, one of John Cage's most famous pieces is, uh, I think it's four minutes and 12 seconds. It's just a piece of silence. And he wrote a every bar. Uh, hmm. And the point was just listen to the sounds around you. That's music. Um, in, in his mind, he was making a point about what is music. I think he asked it so much that now nobody knows what music is. It could be your grandma's left shoe. It, it could be your grandma's left shoes uh, string or whatever. It, it, right. there, there is no objective source to be calling anything anything anymore. So anything could be called anything. Right, right. Yes. Um, but uh, so again, that in point, and again, this is something I want, I want to spend more time with more research on, but uh, I, I think that it, it's evidently so that without Christ as the backbone of society, yeah, you're going to lose the ability to have increasing complexity that first shows itself in the arts and then in other types of um, expression, but it's going to lead itself to the sciences as well. Right. 
an example that Ravi Zacharias pointed out was that oh, one time he was giving a lecture at a um, some university and one of the exhibits had a, a pillar going from the ground to almost the ceiling. And I can't remember what, what the supposed point was of the pillar, um, but Ravi Zacharias's point was, I'll bet you didn't create, because it was, it was big, you know, it was sure. somebody that fell over. Uh, I'll bet you didn't create the foundation of that pillar with the same cavalierness that you created the top. Hmm. Um, I, I think that there there is a tipping point between where we, we stop caring if the bridge can hold everybody up anymore. I mean that mostly figuratively. Right, right. Because... Yeah. Um, <laughs> And again, I, I want to put more time into this this thought, but I, I think that when you remove Christ from society, it, it does more than just not seeing him in our schools anymore. Um, there's something that actually happens to people if you don't see them as the image bearers of God. Right. Um, I think that, that shows in the riots that we're seeing right now. Yeah. Uh, whether it's police brutality or whether it's uh, racism or whether it's um, anti-racism, racism, or um, people think it's okay to deface public property or private property. Uh, those things are acceptable because we are not seeing the others as image bearers of God. Right. If, if we did, if the, if the Christian mentality of uh, forgiveness was the norm, mm then we wouldn't be seeing the things that we are right now. Yeah. And this is going to stretch itself into the arts. Yeah. Um, so if, if I do end up writing a book, it would be to, to point out that again, Christ is the foundation upon which we build everything. Yes. You take Christ away, whether it's immediate or it, if it's over generations, we're going to see the effects of it. And we're going to probably see rises in uh, tribalism. In fact, I, I think that we're, we're probably seeing, some of that now, if you listen to a lot of choir music, and again, I'm, I'm not opposed to any of this. Like I'm not opposed to right. a Just music observation. That, right. Yeah. It, it's, it's an observation of where we are and I'll probably even write some of it. Like I'm not, it's some of it's interesting. Um, but there, there isn't a, um, an objective starting point to be yeah. able to, to continue on this increasing level of, uh, complexity. Some people in the 20th century thought that we were going to see ourselves go from a 12 note system um, into a 24, 36 note system. Mm. And that would have been interesting. I don't, I don't really see that as a possibility. Um, but that kind of 20th century, early 20th century kind of zeal uh, where humanity has no limits. Yeah. I think is, is largely dying off because we don't have Christ as our, uh, as our starting point. Big time. Yeah. I liked what you said about the image bearers too. It's kind of funny you brought that up because I, right before we did this, I just filmed a video for my YouTube channel talking exactly about that, about how when you don't see mankind as fellow image bearers of God, that that is the fundamental 
breaking point of culture and society is when we when we lose that we we lose everything um so go, going off of this kind of to wrap up i want to briefly touch on optimistic eschatology yeah. um, because it ties right into this but i think that increasingly and i don't i don't want to belittle anybody who holds to a dispensational view but i think that the the rise of dispensationalism within the the 1800s and increasingly as we see today um has led to a little bit of a defeatist mentality within christianity um that by and large has been very unhelpful um in terms of the progression of the gospel and the proclamation of the king who's on his throne um and so both you and me hold to an optimistic eschatology and earlier you were talking about how you know the music within Western culture, as well as, you know, the sciences and all that was really by and large due to biblical foundations. And so that advancement, I mean, both of us are very hopeful that that will continue to expand. The kingdom of Christ will expand. Um, how does that, how does an optimistic eschatology tie into all of this really? Yeah. So, uh, so when we say optimistic eschatology, what we're, we're referring to is called post-millennialism. Yeah. Um, so both of us tend to see uh, history climbing and Christ uh, conquering through the gospel. Yes. Um, and I, I'm, I'm no expert at this. Like I, I'm sure that there's plenty of really smart dispensationalists that would be able to take me to town. Um, but essentially, I, I think that the gospel will be uh, successful when Christ says, uh, go out into all the nations and teaching them to obey, uh, preaching the gospel. Um, I, I, I think that in, in essence, that will be fulfilled um, and that we will, we will see uh, not in a prosperity gospel kind of way, but there'll be kinds of prosperity brought about because of it. Right. Um, And so in talking about uh, music and apologetics, uh, I, we, we may end up losing some ground uh, in terms of, the history of music or the history of art or, or what have you. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful because I believe it's, it's, it's not going to stay that way. Right. Uh, because Christ is Lord over music. He's the Lord over, over, over all art. Um, so you know, ultimately when I say that, I mean like, so if, if you're listening to some rap music that is, is saying some bad things, know that he, he is rapping, not in the way that God would rap. And he is, he is uh, in disobedience to his call as a musician and it's a duty, right? You know, what, when, whenever we are expressing ourselves, it's within the duty that we are as creative people to honor God in all the things that we do. Um, so when I, when I say that Christ is Lord over those things, it's not that he, that he approves of all things that are created in that sort of fashion. Yeah. Um, but the things that are, that are created within a certain genre, their duty is to honor God and what they do. Right. Um, but the sticking to the optimism, um, I didn't, I didn't really start with, you know, TikTok was probably the first platform that I've been the most, um, aggressive with the gospel on. Uh, and I became a post millennialist, uh, probably about 10 months ago. Got it. So, and you're, you're pretty recent as well to this Correct. form of thinking. Um, right. But I, I think that that's an important thing because I think a lot of a lot of people that come post millennialists uh, aren't far from being evangelists either, right? Because it's it's much easier to proclaim something that you believe is going to be successful, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah, and I think when uh, when you read scripture, uh, for for example, the the verse that pops up multiple times it says, "For he must reign until he has made all his enemies a footstool for his feet." The last enemy to be defeated is death, um, and we see that his reign was proclaimed as at his first coming. You know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, and so. When you see that the kingdom started then, and when he ascended and sat down and gave that declaration that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go, I really think that we as Christians should take that very, very seriously and, yeah. and recognize that as the Old Testament prophecies talk about, you know, that the nations will bow and repent. Uh, the nations will turn from their wicked ways and stream to the Lord and the the glory of his name and the knowledge of him will be like the waters cover the sea. You know, I, I believe that. And I think that holding on to that is really, really key. Yeah. yeah. And, and keep in mind, I, I actually still go to a dispensational church. Uh, um, I do actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I appreciate all the, the dispensational brothers and sisters I have. And, and our Me too. As well. Me I'm too not, very much. Not, yeah. Another one of us are trying to disparage on brothers and sisters. Um, but it does make a difference having an optimistic look. And, and one thing I, I do oh. warn against, and, and Bunsen talks about this in his, uh, oh, you still got me? Yep, I still got you. Am I here? Yes, you are. Cool. Um, he, he warns against having a, uh, a newspaper mentality. Yes. Um, so not, neither one of us are threatened by the, the riots and COVID and any of that. Christ is Lord. Yeah. Um, in his sovereign timing, postmillennialism has never taught that there will be um, that there is no decrease in Correct. righteousness at any point in time. We very well could be heading into a time of uh, decreased righteousness and increase of unrighteousness. Yeah. Um, but the gospel will still go forth. Yes. Um, uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe China is going to be the next nation to really pick it up and. Yeah. And uh, I think there's more Christians over there than there are in the U.S. About, about to there. pass, I think, 100 million is what they yeah. said recently. So um, so who knows? Maybe we're, we're going to be asking for some of their missionaries to come on over here. Right. Um, God is good, and he's going to do things in his time. We, we're along for the ride. Exactly. Yes, yes. Well, um, do you have any final thoughts on, on these subjects? Uh, I think this is really important. It's an important topic. I think uh, the whole, again, I reiterate this each episode, but the whole purpose of theological arsonist is to get people to understand biblical theology, to approach everything scripturally um, as, as their basis for everything, sola scriptura. Um, and so apologetics is very important, uh, especially with a lot of the opposition we're specifically seeing in Western culture. So what are some final thoughts? If you could leave uh, with anything, what would they yep. be? Uh, ultimately, the gospel is solid. Yeah. Um, the, the more I study apologetics, the more I realize I can just have absolute faith in this stuff and just just live my life in, in peace and, and knowing that God has it um, and trust in him that whatever comes my way is, is, uh, going to be okay. Right. And, and that doesn't guarantee that I'm going to be happy all the time. And, and, uh, 
um, won't go through hard times, but ultimately he has it. Um, right. He, he's got it and we can right. trust him with that. Yeah. Um, and then if, if you want to see more of uh, our, my stuff, I do have a, a TikTok uh, at Christian Apologetics. And then uh, my YouTube is X Garage, uh, EX Garage. Yep. Uh, so I don't know if you want to put a link over there, but we, we normally discuss different worldviews and, and review them from a biblical perspective. Um, so if you're wanting to get more apologetics, jump over there. Cool. Yeah. And I'll have all that linked down below for people to check out. So make sure you click support Jake, um, what he's doing. Well, cool. I'm going to close in prayer and then we can head out. So, uh, father God, we just, we come before you and thank you for this conversation, Lord. I'm thankful for Jake. I'm thankful for his heart for you. I'm thankful, Lord, that you have given us objective reality, Lord, that you have given us um, your word. You have revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ, Lord, and that we can stand on the word of God as ultimate authority, Lord, knowing that it needs no defense, Lord. It defends itself. Um, and so I'm thankful for Jake and his uh, willingness to come on and talk about um, apologetics, presuppositional apologetics, Lord. I appreciate his insight into music and how that relates to all of this, Lord. And um, I just pray for everybody who's listening, Lord, that regardless of their eschatology, um, that they would be optimistic about the future um, and the progression of the gospel as we know that our King is conquering. Um, and so I, I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Cool. Thanks, brother. Let's go theologically burn some buildings down, brother. That sounds great.